Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to our new sermon series for Lent called Give It Up that we're doing with our sister church, Hope, in Scarborough as we prepare for Easter. Um, Just as kind of a a context setting for the uh, series, we're doing this as part of the church's calendar year. And maybe you did not know this, but the church has its own calendar. We have this calendar so that we focus on the life of Christ and the words of Christ at different times during the year. Um, I wanted to put a graphic up here, actually, so you can see what it looks like. Um, Our year is basically broken into these major seasons. So we are entering the season of Lent, which I'll talk about in a second. Um, But the church year starts with Advent, which you can see here at the top left, and Christmas, which makes sense because that's the beginning of Jesus' life, right? So we follow Jesus as he goes towards the cross, which is the season of Lent, until Good Friday when he dies, and then we celebrate Easter when he's risen. Then we spend the second half of the year, the big chunk here, the green and red times, talking about what Jesus said. So we're in the season of Lent. Lent is just a word that means lengthen. It's from Middle English, um, about the lengthening of the days, right? You can kind of get that picture. And the, the purpose of the season for the church has always been to focus our minds on Jesus as he walks towards the cross. Maybe you've noticed that if you're around somebody who is about to die, things get really simple. There can be big conflicts that are resolved because someone might be dying soon. The messiness of life seems to melt into the background, and only a couple things maintain your focus. That's kind of the point of Lent. As Jesus gets closer and closer to dying on the cross, it motivates us as Christians to simplify, to look at what really matters, to push aside all the distractions and focus on Jesus as he goes to the cross. Now, traditionally, Christians have given up things for Lent. Maybe you've done that or are in the process of doing that. You give up things like chocolate or alcohol or coffee or whatever. Um, Frankly, I don't care if you do that. The Bible doesn't say you should or shouldn't. That's up to you. What I care about are are two things. First of all, that you don't do it to make a show. (laughs) Lent is not about you and what you can give up. It's about Jesus. And secondly, and more importantly, that whatever you do, it focuses your heart on Jesus and what he is doing. And that's really the purpose of the Give It Up series. We're going to look at different aspects of our life and see how we can push aside the distractions, push push aside the things that we put our energy and time into so that we can focus on the one thing that is absolutely needful. The text that we're going to start with for this first Sunday in the series is from Matthew chapter 4. Um, if you want to follow along on the screen or in a uh, Bible app on your phone, we'll read the first 11 verses. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. 
Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and the angels came and attended him. This is the gospel of the Lord. And if you've been a Christian for um, a decent amount of time, you've probably heard this story before. Um, It's a very famous story of Jesus. In fact, historically, it's been the lesson that the church has read on the first Sunday of Lent. And beyond that, it's just a really interesting story, isn't it? It makes good theater. Jesus versus Satan, light and darkness, good and evil, like mano y mano, fisticuffs, here they go, right? And all you need is like a crumbling New York skyline and you've got a Marvel movie. It's, it's very exciting, isn't it? But the spiritual implications of this text are thick. We need to hear this text regularly because it deals with something that we all deal with regularly, temptation. And it shows how Jesus takes on temptation and wins. And so I'm going to show you all four of the temptations that Jesus faces in this text and then show you how he defeats them and then give you hopefully three keys for how to defeat temptation in your own life. Now, if you're paying attention when I was reading, you're probably wondering why I just said that there are four temptations. Because it looked like there was three. Turn these stones into bread, jump off this building, bow down and worship me. Except you missed the first one, and maybe the most dangerous of the temptations that Satan throws at Jesus, the if you are the son of God temptation. In fact, if you're taking notes with us in your bulletin, that's the first fill in the blank. Temptation number one, if you are the son of God. Now, to understand this temptation, we have to go back to Matthew chapter three, right before Matthew chapter four, and see the story that has just happened. Jesus has been baptized And all three persons of the triune God have shown up at the same time. Jesus, of course, in the water. God the Father as a voice from heaven that says, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit also there descending like a dove. And the very next story that we get is this story, which starts with these words, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now you heard it in the text. For 40 days, Jesus is wandering this wilderness by himself, fasting, not eating anything. And then after those 40 days, Satan shows up and he says, if you are the son of God, which is a particularly powerful temptation. Jesus has just been told by God, you are everything that I want you to be. And then he has spent 40 days alone. Behind Satan's words, you can hear this temptation if you are the son of God, and he meant all that stuff that he said about you back in the river, why are you out here by yourself? Does he still care about you? If you're the son that he says he's so well pleased with, why don't you have any food? If you're the son of God, why aren't you more comfortable? This seems like a pretty rotten place to be. And is that not a temptation that we all have faced at some point in our life, right? where bad things have been happening to us, and we have wondered in the back of our mind, did God really mean what he said about me? Like some struggle, some pain, some frustration comes into your life, and you wonder, did God mean it when he said he would never leave me or forsake me? Because I feel pretty alone right now. Did God mean it when he said that nothing can separate me from his love? Because I don't feel 
very lovable right now. Did God really mean it when he said that he's going to work all things out for my good? Because I don't see much good coming out of this situation. It's a temptation we have all faced, right? And I think that temptation is one of the best evidences for Satan's existence. You know, there are some people in the world who do not believe that Satan actually exists. They would say that he's a figment of people's imagination, a way to explain away evil. But I'm convinced that temptations like this show us that Satan is real. I mean, just put this in a human context for a second. Let's say there's somebody in your life who you absolutely trust because they have done everything with your best interest in mind their entire life. They've constantly been giving to you. They've been faithful to you and listened to you and had time for you your whole life. Would you not continue to trust that person? Absolutely you would. You would trust them implicitly. You would trust them with even more than you used to trust them with, right? So why don't you trust God? God has been faithful your entire life. Everything that he has said in his word has happened, exactly as he said it has happened. He's been watching over your life, taking care of you, giving you everything you need every day, and yet not a person in this room, myself included, would say we've gone our whole life without wondering, does God really care about me? Why is that? Because Satan is real. And it leads us into the first takeaway that I want you to get from this uh, first temptation of Jesus. If you're taking notes with us in your bulletin, that's the next fill in the blank. Satan is coming. Satan wants nothing more than for you to distrust God. Now, based on God's track record, that's an absolutely foolish thing to do, but the case is still that Satan hates God and hates what he does and wants to bring you to hell with him. I think this is pretty common, um, especially for people who are new to the Christian faith, but I think everyone who has been a Christian has seen this at least once in their life. Um, They've gone through a a time of intense spiritual growth, whether it's coming to the faith for the first time or coming back to the faith after you've fallen away for a while, or maybe that you've just invested more time in your Bible and you've been learning more about what Jesus says and what Jesus has done, and you've really grown to trust Jesus. Almost inevitably, that experience is going to be followed by a time of intense suffering. You think back on your life. When are some of the moments where you had the greatest spiritual growth? Were you not met right on the heels of that experience with something that was a struggle? Something that was pain, something that was frustration, that was loss? There's a really good reason for this. Satan hates you. He hates that you believe God's word. He hates that you trust Jesus. He hates that God has sealed you for heaven and he wants to do everything in his power to get you away from it. This goes exactly against our programming, doesn't it? Like in our minds, if things between us and God are going really well, then life on earth around us should be going really well. Like if I'm spending time in my Bible and I'm praying and I'm at worship, like things should be going pretty well. God should be taking care of me. Except that's not the case, especially for Jesus, right? Jesus is given the best commendation of all time. God the Father says, I am pleased with you, and then Jesus gets to suffer for 40 days. Why do we think we're any different? You know, I've seen this happen very practically in our congregation. I know there are some of you who have really taken great strides in your faith the last six months or so. 
You've been investing in our activity here as a congregation. You've been investing in your Bible. Some of you have come to faith for the first time or come back to faith after being away for a while. And the very next thing that has happened, and I've seen this, is Satan takes a swipe at you, doesn't he? He goes after the people you love. He brings an intense temptation into your life. He brings those feelings of guilt back that God really couldn't love you like he said he would. It's because Satan hates you. Satan attacks me. I mean, ever since I've been the pastor here at Cross of Life, I have felt Satan's attacks more than ever. You know, if I back up to like a 30,000-foot view of our congregation and just oversee everything that's happening, we're, we're doing really well. <laughs> like, God is really blessing what we're doing. Yeah, we have our negatives and our, our bad spots, but overall, God is doing cool things through our congregation. And yet, not a week goes by where I am sitting, not sitting in my office at least once or maybe twice, maybe a couple times, thinking, I have blown it. This is the end. It's all over. I'm a terrible pastor. This congregation's going in the ground in six months. And it's a completely illogical thought, right? Like, I know that God is, first of all, the Lord of the church, and he is going to take care of you regardless of how good of a pastor I am. And secondly, I'm seeing the results every day of how God works in this congregation, and yet I think that thought. Why? Because Satan hates me, and he hates our church, and he hates that I preach the word, and he hates that you believe it. And so he's doing everything in his power to take it down. You can see how he attacks the unity of our church too, can't you? You know, when I talk with my pastor friends and I get to brag about you a little bit, I always talk about how God has blessed this congregation with an amazing group of spiritual leaders. Like a congregation our size, we would be pretty lucky if we had like two to four really solid lay leaders in our congregation. But we have double digits in both men and women. God has given amazing blessings to our church. People who are invested, who are spiritually minded, who love ministry and love the gospel. They're everywhere. They're, they're all sitting right here. And Satan knows he can't change that, but he does know that if he can get you all working in different directions, it'll break down the work of our church. Imagine what our church would be like if all those spiritual leaders were all moving the same direction with love and support for each other. I don't even know if I can imagine what that would be like. Satan certainly doesn't want to imagine it. He would rather destroy that type of unity by putting personal conflicts and differences of opinion and a mistreatment or a word thoughtlessly said between the people of our congregation. Satan is coming, brothers and sisters. But the second takeaway is that temptation... And suffering does not mean abandonment. Naturally, we would think that if things are not going very well in our congregation or in our personal lives, that something is wrong between us and God. But Jesus shows us very clearly that that is not the case, right? He shows us that God can be absolutely pleased with a person and then still allow them to suffer. Now, why is that? This past Monday, my Echo class, my 7th and 8th graders, we talked about the word forgiveness. We found out that the word forgiveness in the Greek language, which was what the New Testament was originally written in, is the same word that is used to talk about divorce. Now, if you're trying to figure out how divorce and forgiveness are the same, and you're not getting anywhere, it's probably because you don't have a very biblical understanding of what forgiveness is. What is divorce? 
Divorce is two things to people who are inextricably tied, the Bible would say one flesh, being ripped apart by the exposing of everything that's wrong with their relationship. And it's painful. If you've been through a divorce yourself or watched a family member or a friend go through a divorce, you know it is awful. What is forgiveness? Two things, you and your sin, inextricably tied, your nature that you were born with, your wickedness and evil that you inherited from your parents being ripped apart from you. And it's not pleasant. It's painful. Because your sin is not going quietly into the night. No, it's clawing and scratching and grabbing and shrieking to stay in your life. But every time that you come here and express to me and to the rest of the congregation that I am a bad person, I am a sinner by nature, evil, looking for wicked things to do, but I trust that God will forgive me, will divorce me from my sin, and I get to say to you, you are forgiven in the name of your baptism, the name that God gave you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then in one small way that sin is just ripped a little bit further away from you. If you have trouble admitting that you're wrong, if you have trouble admitting that you're wicked, it's because you don't want to divorce from sin. But God offers you that divorce, oftentimes through suffering. Because sin, as we'll find out a little bit later, is often tied to the very good things of our life that we've made into ultimate things. And as God tries to rip those things out of our life, it's going to hurt. It's going to cause suffering. It maybe is even going to cause tears. But that doesn't mean it's not working. We, have, we as a culture have medicated ourselves so much when it comes to surgery that we don't feel anything during surgery. And I'm not saying that's necessarily a bad thing, but think back a couple generations to when we didn't have things like anesthetics. We just had to bear with the pain because we knew that something on the other side was going to be better. That's what God is doing to you. He describes it like gold or silver going into a fire, a hot fire that burns off all the dross, all the excess, so that what comes out the other side is pure gold. You think being in a fire is pleasant? No. But what comes out the other side is far more pure. If your life is a struggle right now, God has not abandoned you. If anything, God is working harder to separate you, to divorce you from your sin. So that's temptation number one. Temptation number two, if you're taking notes with us, don't worry, it's going to be a little bit shorter than the first one. Make these stones into bread, is what Satan says to Jesus, right? He says, you're hungry. You haven't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights. You should make these stones into bread. You can do it, right, if you are the Son of God. Now, I alluded to this earlier, but temptation often comes from good things, right? Satan doesn't offer Jesus something inherently bad. He doesn't say, Jesus, if you're the Son of God, go rob this bank. Jesus, if you're the Son of God, smoke this. No, he says, Jesus, if you're the son of God, make yourself some bread. Bread's really good. I love homemade bread. But when bread, or any good thing, becomes the ultimate thing, it becomes sin. Just as an example, think about the people who are not at church this morning. Do you think any of them are not at church for inherently bad reasons? 
Like they were like, I'm not going to go to church today because I'm thinking I'm going to go cheat on my spouse instead. I'm not going to go to church today because I would rather commit grand larceny. You know what I need to do? Instead of going to church, I'm going to burn down a hospital. No, nobody's saying that, right? What they're doing is they're doing really good things. They're sleeping. They're eating breakfast. They're maybe with their family. All good things. But God's definition of idolatry is when those good things become ultimate things, that's when they become sin. It's not that God doesn't want you to have bread, even if you're gluten intolerant. It's not that he doesn't want you to have sleep or breakfast or family or good times. He just says, make them second. Make me first. Don't let the good things of your life become the ultimate things. And this shows itself in so many ways in our life. Whether it's a relationship that we have or want to have, a job that we have or want to have, an image that we want to have or maybe have that we try to maintain, a status among people, whatever it is, we can turn it into an ultimate thing, the thing that gives us security, confidence, and comfort in life. When that happens, run far away. Because that's Satan offering you something good to become the ultimate thing in your life. Third temptation, jump. Right? Satan takes Jesus to the top of the temple and says, jump. Because God's going to send his angels to concern you and guide you in all your ways so that your foot will not get struck by a stone. This is an important temptation for us to study because it shows us the necessary um, position of doctrine and scripture in our life. You notice this is the first temptation that Satan actually uses scripture against Jesus, right? He quotes from the Psalms, he will command his angels concerning you, Psalm 91, which teaches us something a little bit scary, that Satan knows the scripture too. Just to make this really personal, Why do you trust me to tell you the truth about Jesus? Is it because I went to school for 12 years to do it? It's not a good enough reason because there are people who have gone to school for 12 years who teach something very different than what I teach. Is it because I went to the same seminary as your your former pastor? Not good enough because there are guys who have graduated from that same seminary who are more than not Lutheran, they're not Christian anymore. You trust me because I seem like a pretty nice guy. I don't look like I would lie to you. Not good enough. Jesus says exactly these words. Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Don't get me wrong. I want you to trust me with God's word for your spiritual benefit. But if you are implicitly trusting me to always give you the truth, then you are like a person climbing a rock wall without a harness. You might get to the top. You might be safe but you have not prepared yourself at all for the inevitable danger. I would love to think, and I will strive with all of my energy to always preach you the truth from God's word, but I have a sinful nature, and Satan hates my ministry. And I am not immune from possibly saying things incorrectly. And it goes beyond just me, right? There are all sorts of Christian sources out there in the world, whether they're in books or YouTube videos or podcasts or movies, And they're going to tell you some things about Jesus. Do you trust them implicitly because they got published? That's not good enough. What Jesus says is more important through this temptation is to know 
the scripture. You know, when government officials are taught to identify fake money, they're not shown a list of all the different types of fake money. They're shown the genuine article and told to know everything about it. If you want to avoid false doctrine, if you want to avoid being lied to by an evil being who knows the scripture, then you better know it too. Fourth temptation. Satan takes Jesus to a high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world, and says, I'll give you all this if you just worship me. And I think the logical question is, can Satan actually do that? Can Satan actually give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world? Like, if Jesus had bowed down and worshipped him, would he have gotten all those kingdoms? And the answer is, it doesn't matter. Satan is a liar. Why would you even entertain the thought? Satan is not a businessman that makes transactions with you. No, he is a lying chaos creator. All he wants is for you to go down a path of which there is no end. Constantly seeking your own control, your own happiness, your own acknowledgement, your own security, instead of looking to God for it. So why even entertain the question? It doesn't matter. And if you think you're immune to this, then realize that Satan has offered you far less than the world, and you've taken him up on it. He's offered you a moment of security. He's offered you a moment of pleasure the feeling of victory over another person, escape from your problems, and you took him up on it. And so have I. Satan doesn't need to take us to the top of a mountain and say, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. He doesn't need to try that hard. Our takeaway from Temptation 4, which is not a blank for you, because I want you to look at the screen and read this a couple times. Against Satan, you're not strong enough. If you think that going up against Satan one-on-one, mano y mano, his temptation against your willpower is going to get you to stop sinning, to trust Jesus in all situations, and to know exactly what God says in his word, you're not strong enough. Not a one of us, not me, not you, can win that battle. But thankfully for us, we don't have to. See, Jesus... And what he did to beat those three temptations gives us three keys for how to defeat temptation in our own lives. And the first of those, if you're taking notes with us, is to know Jesus' nature. In our church, we believe what the Bible says about Jesus, that he is 100% God and 100% man at the same time. He is man because the Bible says he is. It says he has human characteristics, like he was born of a woman, he's tired, gets hungry, And he also says he is a man. And we also believe that he's God, because the Bible says he's God. He also shows God-like characteristics, like being able to read people's minds and do miracles. But we don't just believe it because the Bible says it. We also believe it because the alternative is absolutely terrifying. If Jesus is not 100% God and 100% man at the same time, then you are not going to heaven. Because if he's less, anything less, than 100% man, then he didn't really die on the cross. Because God can't die. Human beings can die. Complete human beings can die. But God can't. So Jesus had to be 100% man in order to die on the cross. 
he also had to be 100% God. Because if he was anything less than 100% God, then he would have had a little bit of imperfection in him. And like Romans 6, 23 says, the wages of sin, the wages of any imperfection is death. And when Jesus died, he would have died for his own sins, his own imperfections, not yours. So Jesus has to be 100% God and 100% man at the same time. Now, why do I say that? Because when Jesus faces Satan's temptations, he does it just like you, 100% human. Now, I'm not saying he wasn't 100% God at this time, but I am saying he was 100% man, which means he needed to take on Satan as a human. And the way that he did that was to use scripture, right? You can read every single one of these temptations. How does Jesus answer with scripture, right? Make these stones into bread. Well, it is written that you should, uh, that you should listen to God's word and that would be better than bread for you. You live on those words. That's what the scripture says. Jump off this building. Don't put the Lord your God to the test, it's written. I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Worship the Lord and serve him only. That's what's written. And do you think that Jesus, just because he was 100% God, had like Google in his head? that he could just pull up a verse like this? No, he memorized those scriptures. He was 100% man. When he was born, he had to go to school to learn how to speak. And then he read those scriptures again and again and memorized what they had to say. He loved them. When he was on the cross, he was continuing to quote scripture. In fact, the only story of Jesus' childhood that we have in the Bible is him at the synagogue talking about the scripture. He loved it and he knew it. And I challenged you to do the same. To first of all realize that Jesus goes up against Satan as a man so that when you go up against Satan as a human being, you do it the same way he did, with scripture. That's the second key. Know Jesus' words. I challenged you last week to memorize one verse of scripture so that you could know it a little bit better. I did that because I knew Satan was coming and I knew he was coming after you and I knew that the only way that you would be able to defeat his temptations and his accusations is with scripture. This is why we have Bible study, by the way. Why we have a 930 Bible study that goes through the book of Proverbs right now, a Wednesday night Bible study that goes through 1 Corinthians. Why we always preach right from the scripture on Sunday mornings. Because if you're going to take on the second most powerful being in all the universe, then you need to know the words of the most powerful being in all the universe. I have one really practical way that you can take home and do this, besides continuing to memorize scripture verses every week. Uh, Pastor Aaron Getzinger, he's a pastor in our pastoral circuit, he's in Watertown, New York. He created a devotional resource for Lent called Like None Other where you read short sections of scripture, you listen to a song that's related to that from a Spotify playlist, you spend some time journaling about what those verses mean, and then you pray. I challenge you, if you do not have a regular devotional life where you are in the scripture every day, that you take advantage of that devotional resource. We sent it out in an email this week. If you didn't get it, make sure you tell me. I'll get it into your hands because I want you to know scripture, to know Jesus' words that you can take on the temptation of Satan. You know, it's hard as you read this text not to simplify it, though, to make it just about defeating temptation. When temptation comes into my life, having a checklist, like I do this, do this, do this, and then I can defeat Satan. 
While this text definitely does that, if that's all it does, it's insufficient. Because every one of you and me know that there have been times Satan has come with temptation and I have not fought it off. I've given in. I've taken far less than the world. I've made good things into ultimate things. I've incorrectly understood his word. And I believed that because my life isn't going well, God has somehow abandoned me. So if that's where this text leaves you, then that's not enough gospel for you. But the gospel is the last key to defeating temptation here. And that's to know Jesus' sacrifice. I don't think anybody can deny the connections between this text from Matthew 4 and the text that we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 10. In fact, I'd love you to just take out your bulletin for a second and turn to 1 Corinthians 10 and look at this with me. Look at the connections between these two texts. First of all, you have verses 1 and 2 of 1 Corinthians 10 where he talks about his ancestors passing through the Red Sea, baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The Red Sea is used multiple times in the scripture to be the picture of baptism, and then Paul here uses it as the picture of baptism. Well, what had Jesus just done? Been baptized, and then went through suffering, right? Verse 3 to 5, they get spiritual food and spiritual drink from the spiritual rock, which Satan tempted Jesus to turn into bread, right? Verse 9, we should not test Christ, which is what Satan tempted Jesus to do with God. And then verse 11, the culmination of the ages, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus, where Jesus actually did get all the kingdoms of the world, as the Bible says, God put them under his feet, not because he worshiped Satan, but because he suffered to win it. You know, there's a little uh, portion, a little verse at the end of Luke's account of this same story where he gives a little clue into this sacrifice. Luke 4.13 says, When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Do you know when that opportune time came? When those who passed by hurled insults at him, saying, Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And in that moment, it wasn't just bread that Jesus could have had. He could have avoided death. But instead, he was willing to be abandoned by God so that suffering would never mean abandonment for you. When he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He meant it. He was separate from God in that moment. How? I don't know, but that's what the scripture says. So that you would never be separate from God. So Paul concludes with these words. If you think you are standing firm, be careful you don't fall. No temptation has seized you beyond what is common to mankind. And and who is mankind? Well, mankind reduced to one is the person of Jesus Christ. The 100% man who got all of Satan's best shots and deflected every single one with scripture. No temptation beyond that has seized you. And if a temptation does seize you, God gives you a chance to stand up under it, to endure it, to go through it. How? By knowing Jesus' sacrifice. Though the accuser roar of all the sins that I have done, my God, he knows none, the old hymn says. I pray that seeing this simplifies your life. 
It helps you realize that there are good things in your life that need to stop being ultimate things. I hope it leads you to study your scripture so you can know what to say when Satan comes with his accusations. I pray that it leads you to trust that even though bad things might be happening in your life right now, they are not because God has abandoned you. Give up your strength against Satan and let Jesus do it for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for defeating Satan in that wilderness. When you were weak and taken down by the long time of fasting, you still stood up with Scripture, even though none of us would have been able to. We thank you that you died to pay for the sins of, of all people, and that in doing so, you also gave us all your righteousness every time that you have said no to sin. Sink that deep into our hearts, Jesus, and let it permeate everything we do. Amen.